Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade, bringing you an expanding library of education with even more ways to sharpen your trading skills. Access new online courses, insightful webcasts, articles, engaging videos, and more, all curated just for traders. Plus, guided learning paths with content designed to fit your unique interests. No sifting to find exactly what you need so you can spend your time learning to trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com slash trading. The less your business spends, the more margin you keep. But today, everything costs more. So smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one proven platform, helping you reduce IT costs, maintenance costs, and manual errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com earnings right now. NetSuite.com earnings. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. You know, I'm usually not that keen to talk to economists, you know, but there's a couple I really like that kind of make it simple that I can understand stuff. Yelena Shuletiva is one of them. She's the senior U.S. economist for Bloomberg News. And Yelena, lots to parse over. I know you guys at Bloomberg Economics have been super busy uh, this week. Let's talk uh, about this morning's GDP print, uh, much lower than expected, a negative number. What do you take away from it? So I think in terms of recession or not, I think um, maybe not yet, okay. but that clearly significantly raises risks uh, for recession to happen this year. And uh, the reason uh, is not just, uh, you know, the two consecutive uh, negative readings, but if you look beneath the surface, you will see that, uh, for example, final sales to domestic purchases, that GDP that excludes uh, volatile categories such as trade and inventories, that uh, fell for the first time since the COVID recession. So that is telling you that underlying demand is weakening significantly. Another thing that I would like to highlight yep. is real services. You know, we, we were talking about people going on vacations. We were just sure. discussing, we were planning uh, some vacations too. That uh, was supposed to be strong in June. But if you look at the data and you calculate uh, the implied growth rate in June from the data we have, that will show you services spending is slowing into the uh, end of the second well, quarter. Well, I haven't seen my visa bill from July for my Hawaii trip. <laughs> right. <laughs> that might tip but, the scales back. But the data are telling you that things are slowing down okay. towards the end of the quarter, which creates risks for the third quarter. So it was an ugly headline. Sounds like the details under the surface were messy, too, when it comes to GDP. I do want to talk about the Fed a little bit and where exactly they are on the curve because it caught my eye yesterday. I mean, everyone has an opinion about the Fed, but we heard from Scott Miner and Oliver Guggenheim. So his fear is that, you know, perhaps the central bank opened the door a little bit too wide to the possibility of cooling down in terms of their rate hikes. Then you heard from double end Jeff Gunlock, for example, saying that the Fed is no longer behind the curve. I would love to hear where you fall on that debate. So I think the Fed will try to do as much as they can at this point. And, you know, they are going to find reasons to uh, keep saying that uh, the economy remains strong, you know, as long as the labor market yeah. uh, continues to deliver, right? 
I think the that uh, they will have to step back uh, at at some point. You know, if if you know if we see the data start crippling, look at uh, jobless claims data for yes. example. So we're like halfway through. Uh, from the trough in jobless claims in March to uh, the level that is associated with the start of a recession. So we're already halfway through in terms of uh, the uh, climb in jobless claims. But uh, I think what will be interesting to see next week, we're going to get another payrolls report, is where uh, the deceleration in job creation is happening. Which sectors? Like, is it just concentrated uh, in housing and certain, you know, uh, goods-related sectors, or is it a broader slowing in the labor so market? So, are you concerned about the labor market? Because that's certainly one of the pillars that the the, the argument or the people that make the argument. Oh, we're not in a recession because the labor market is so strong. The data are so contradicting. Okay. And, uh, you know, on the one hand, you see diffusion index, for example, that shows breadth of job creation. That was really strong in the previous report uh, in June. But what will July data uh, going to tell us? On the other hand, I already mentioned jobless claims are creeping higher. Mm -hmm. And uh, we can see some slowdown in wage growth as well. All right, so keep an eye on the labor market. Let's talk about inflation, though, because it's interesting to me that if you look at you know some of the measures of inflation expectations, whether that's break-evens in the bond market, or if you look at some of these surveys, it seems that in expectations, at least, have peaked. But when it comes to inflation itself, when do you think we could actually maybe start to crest there? Uh, well, it depends core versus headline, yeah. right? So, uh, and that will... Uh, really depend on geopolitical developments, I think. So, you know, core has peaked, but there are some sticky categories in the core, such as shelter, that will continue to uh, increase because it's just such a lagging indicator. So in terms of the headline, and it's important because, uh, you know, the Fed recently mentioned that they are looking at the headline numbers, depends on energy prices, and, you know, I'm really scared to make any predictions on All that right, front. Well, let's go to that front. The daily national average gasoline prices, which is the first ticker I bring up every morning, it continues to tick lower, $4.27 per gallon. Um, so it looks like at least at the gas pump, which is a, a piece of inflation that everybody feels, except Tom Keene, who doesn't have a car, uh, everybody feels. And that's coming down pretty steadily. Which will uh, be reflected in uh, sentiment uh, measures, I think. Okay. And uh, perhaps, you know, people will uh, spend a little bit more in real terms uh, in the beginning of the third quarter. But I'm just worried this is a little bit more broad-based. And yep. if, uh, you know, Europe goes into an energy crisis this fall, this will not leave everybody else, like, just isolated. That's yep. what my worry is. All right, there is a lot for you economists to keep busy uh, at Bloomberg Economics. Yelena Shulethyeva, senior U.S. economist uh, for Bloomberg, joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. It's so much better when people come in studio, I Katie. know, it's so nice. See yeah. all these smiling faces. Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade, giving you even more specialized support than ever before, like access to the trade desk, our team of passionate traders ready to tackle anything from the most complex trading questions to a simple strategy gut check. Need assistance? No problem. Get 24-7 professional answers and live help and access support by phone, email, and in-platform chat. That's how Schwab is here for you, to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com trading. 
Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. Lots of cross currents in these markets here. And again, we could just see it in the trading. Big, big moves up yesterday. And as Greg was just reporting, uh, giving some of that back today, it kind of reflects uh, some of the uncertainty as the market tries to discount all these data points from the Fed yesterday to earnings to the data, eco data we're getting today in terms of GDP. Let's check in with a professional who does this for a living. Rick Pitcairn, CIO of Pitcairn, joins us. Rick, what's your takeaway from... You know, the earnings from the Fed yesterday, from the GDP print, how has your outlook changed, if at all? Uh, well, hi, Paul. How are you? And nice to be here today. It's an incredibly dynamic time for the markets, and, and that was underscored by Powell's statements yesterday. You know, uh, since November, they've placed inflation fighting uh, and, at, and inflation fighting at the expense of all other economic issues at the forefront of their rhetoric and their actions. And yesterday, he began to open the door in the second half of the speech to a possible pause, a possible pivot. The markets uh, reacted super positively, as we saw. I think uh, our view is that it's still a time for more caution than aggression, because uh, there's a lot of dynamics, as you mentioned, going through this market, and I, I don't think we have all the answers yet. I think things are still subject to change, and I'm not sure if we're all the way through the tough times, even as strong as yesterday was. And Rick, let's talk about that. More caution than aggression. How does that uh, filter down into how you structure a portfolio? Where do you see opportunity? Where are you avoiding? Well, I'm lucky. I've worked with uh, um high net worth individuals and high net worth families for my whole career. They tend to have a longer term view. Uh, they're all operating in the land of taxes. Uh, so tax drag is important. So, you know, a Pitcairn portfolio will be a, a, a more diverse portfolio that'll be in a more strategic than tactical in the way that it's laid out. And it'll rely on a series of managers underneath that. And we see those managers pivoting right now to a little bit different kind of a time. You know, two years ago, uh, long duration assets, uh, stocks that were growing revenue regardless of earnings uh, were, were, were really highly valued. I think in a land where liquidity is tighter, where the Fed will be tighter rather than looser, you have to go to a different kind of a playbook. And, and uh, we've seen some different kinds of cla asset classes that weren't working in 2016, 17, 18 working very well right now, whether that's small value and equity land, commodities, certain kinds of hedge funds. So we're certainly emphasizing those in our portfolios. 
Rick, we're kind of, I would say, kind of right in the middle of this earnings season. A lot of big tech num numbers coming out this week. Well, the Apple and Amazon after the close. Any takeaways so far for you during kind of what you've seen, what you've heard from managements? We were struck going into this session, uh, this earnings season, because we had a 8.9% forecasted year-over-year -year earnings growth. And, you know, with the employment situation we have, very strong employment market, and very strong earnings growth, it's hard to contemplate a really tough recession uh, when you have those two cornerstones on the positive side. So the conventional wisdom was, well, that 8.9 can't hold. It has to, it, we're going to go into a recession-area environment, and that number is going to get creamed. And I think that number will come in based on the environment we have. But I think this earnings season uh, uh, probably has been better than the whispers in terms of forward guidance. Uh, the, the Honeywell number this morning, he said, you know, Regardless of the slowing in the broader economy, our business lines have shown dynamic growth in the first six months, and they're going to continue to show that growth throughout the rest of the year. That wasn't what the whisper had in mind in late June. They thought that forward guidance would be a little bit worse. I think that's been another reason we've had uh, you know, a, a stronger bounce back July in the speculative sectors. And that bounce back, though, that we've seen in the speculative sectors, as you mentioned, I mean, over the past month, it's actually been a very robust rally. Uh, how, I guess, what's your conviction there? Because, it, I mean, you look at volume, you look at volatility, just falling off a cliff. Usually uh, that means pretty low conviction. Wondering uh, if that's the case on your end as well. Well, our technical research doesn't really show that even though it's an impressive rally on price, particularly in the NASDAQ, the internals are great. They aren't just screaming, you know, like they did in, say, uh, April of 2009. You know, this is a big-time buy here. There's a ton of internal momentum. It's a little more tepid than that. I would just tell investors, you know, we feel, I think, a little bit in our personal lives like COVID is over. Like, we can go to the restaurant. We can get on the airplane. We can, we can travel. We can do those things. But from a macroeconomic perspective, the scale of the – of, of the various impacts that COVID had on our economy, whether it was that massive liquidity impulse in 2020 that caused a great rally. Now we're going to pull that back. You know, I, I would be cautious to uh, to flash the all green light here. I, I think patience, I think patience is always a good thing uh, in investment world. And even in light of the last three weeks, which has thankfully been strong for markets, I'd, I'd still you know, tighten my seatbelt and, and, and keep an eye out for the changing data because I think it's going to continue to change. All right, Rick, good stuff there. We appreciate getting uh, your thoughts. Rick Pitcairn, he's the CIO at Pitcairn. Been managing money for a long time, getting his perspective here. All right, here's uh, a line from a recent research note from our next guest. Quote, Pete Fed hawkishness has passed. Fed is preparing for a slower pace of tightening without a specific guidance. Equities are a go, end quote. That line and that content comes from Ben Emmons, Managing Director of Global Macro Strategy at Medley Global Advisors. Ben, I think the market yesterday kind of agreed with you. Give us your thoughts about what we heard uh, from our Federal Reserve yesterday. Hey, Paul. Uh, thanks for having me again. Um, yeah, so he was clear that they are now full mode data dependent and therefore there's no guidance, at least not until September. After that, maybe it will return. But 
it does look like that what they want to do is get out of the shenanigans of saying, well, we're going to do 50 or 75, and then it has to become 100 if a data point is more than expected, and then guiding that back. And I think that will cause too much uncertainty in the markets and in the economy. So going back to data dependent leads us to what we went through in 2014 to 16 on the Janet Yellen, right? And getting actually a multi-policy that doesn't surprise you because it is data dependent and therefore it's not hawkish either. And that's, I think, the interpretation the market is taking, especially the bond market. Today's stock market is, as Katie reported, like it always is the day after sells off on after Fed day, but I do think the, the sell-off is limited with that message in mind. We have a data dependent Fed that isn't as hawkish at this point. Isn't as hawkish at, at this point. I mean, we've seen a lot of conflicting notes uh, as to whether the Fed truly did pivot. But Ben, in your right. view, if equities are a go, I'm curious what you make of this bond market move, because can equities and treasuries be a go at the same time? Or does it is it too black and white? There's some black and white in that, because I will agree with you that, you know, if you think of the very short end of the yield curve, so something of, a, say, six-month T-bills out to two-year Treasury notes, they should be much more closer to the trajectory of the Fed funds rate uh, in the future. And and the reason why is that Powell very clearly yesterday guided on, on twice that they're looking at the 2022 and the 2023 median dot as their objective to reach with the funds rate. So... I do think there's some level of mispricing happening there on the on the equity side on the other hand you know the more hawkish the fed may still sound even though data dependent is not hawkish you know long-end yields are somewhat now contained right there's not much of a of a surprise from the fed with a sudden 100 base point hike saying for example so the term premium is declining i think that will support i think on in the long-term stocks on the, under the assumption that you do get a funds rate that's high enough to bring inflation down. So I kind of come down to that the shorter the yield curve looks to start to be somewhat mispriced, the longer the curve is more about, well, if you're reaching 3.5% funds rate, maybe that is sufficient to bring inflation down. Why you don't see much traction in higher yields, sir? So, Ben, there's, you know, for strategists like yourselves and economists, there's no shortage of data points here to try to get a handle where this market might be headed. Uh, today, we had GDP print uh, for the second quarter, came in at negative 0.9%. The consensus was for positive 0.4%. So that's two quarters in a row of a negative GDP print. What do you take away from that? More importantly, what do you think Fed Chairman Jay Powell takes away from that? Yeah, you could start again with that same kind of headline, speak hawkishness, like technically a recession, right? Because, you know, that's what people say. So the inventory data is all over the map, right? And that was highlighted by the BEA that the private investment in inventory is really declining and the PCE is slowing. So I do take away from that it's an economy really slowing, but it's still an economy that is in, on an annualized basis above potential. And that's what Powell also said yesterday, right? He, he pushed back on the recession, one, because of, yeah, we don't have rising, fast rising unemployment or any unemployment, but we also have an economy above potential. But even though this number is negative and the previous number was negative and it technically says that it's a recession, the potential analysis I think is important come in here. Now, if we do start to slow to potential or lower, then, then we, we likely are in a recession. So. I think this is how the market is somewhat taking. I find the equity market, you know, limited in its in its reaction to this negative number. And Ben, I want to go back to something that you said that data dependent in terms of the Fed is not 
hawkish and just to play devil's advocate a little bit i mean isn't it entirely unknowable if it does depend on the data which uh who knows what it'll come in when we think about pce coming up for example yeah for sure and and, you know and and back in in, again the 2014-16 period i was at that time portfolio manager i was debating that same idea of like wait a minute this data dependent actually makes it more volatile right we don't know what this data is going to be and how to react shouldn't that be more uncertain but this, the market takes it the opposite, right? It says basically that if you're going to be hawkish, you're going to guide us, right? To be hawkish and say, we really think we should hike by another 50, 75, 100 basis points, that type of language. Like we had from the period May through July just now. Uh, and again, I think that they wanted to get away from that. Not only that they probably recognize the economy softening, as they said in the statement, but also that they recognize it causes too much uncertainty because they had to scale up through the Wall Street Journal even leaking that they had to go for 75 instead of 50. I think they wanted to get out of that sort of communication and therefore I think it's not hawkish. Now, are they hawkish? Everybody would agree that if you're gonna move further with the Fed funds rate above neutral, that's restrictive monetary policy as they call it. That is actually hawkish. I think for the bond markets more taking like, you're not gonna surprise us anymore with a sudden major hike unless the data truly confirms it. And therefore, your language currently is not considered as hawkish. <laughs> so, you know, it's interesting, Ben. One of the arguments that I hear from the, the camp of folks saying that we're not in a recession or it's not going to be that bad is that uh, the labor market is still strong. That's something you pointed out, too. But we had initial jobless claims today came in a little bit higher than expected. Uh, the revision uh, was also higher. Is there some initial signs that the job market may not be as strong or maybe weakening? Yeah, I would say more like loosening up in, in the labor market, which I think was what Powell was uh, referring to yesterday too. I noticed right, the claims are the best indicator of the labor market. Um, you know, that's same as you follow the SAM rule from Claudia Sam. It's, it's, it's actually very linked to that. Once that, that average starts to move up higher, it does indicate at least a, a softening or loosening of the labor market. I think in this case, that is loosening because of so many people so out of the labor force and now maybe on the retail level, there's some layoffs happening and some other things going on. Was striking though too that Powell mentioned the claims yep. data specifically, but then there, but said we, we cannot make much of it. We actually think it may not be real. <laughs> so that's uh, that's an interesting statement, yep. right? Because it is ticking up, right? As you say, so it's to note. All right, Ben, great stuff. Always appreciate getting your perspective here. Again, a lot of data points to parse through here. Ben Emmons helps us do that. He's a managing director of Global Macro Strategy at Medley Global Advisors. Schwab Trading is now powered by Ameritrade to give you a new elevated trading experience tailor-made for trader minds. Go deeper with Thinkorswim, the powerful award-winning trading platforms now at Schwab. Unlock support from the Trade Desk, our team of passionate traders who live and breathe trading like you do. And sharpen your skills with an expanding library of online education crafted just for traders. All designed to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com trading. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years, and it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. 
Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. Busy M&A times in the airline business. JetBlue Airways uh, today is acquiring deep discounter Spirit Airlines for at least $3.8 billion in cash, clinching a deal less than a day after Spirit called off a planned merger with Frontier Group Holdings. To get the latest on that deal, we are uh, very happy to welcome Barry Biffle, CEO and president of Frontier Airlines. Barry, thanks so much for joining. I know it's been a crazy, crazy time for you and your company Give us your perspective here on the news that JetBlue appears to have won the day for Spirit. Hey, look, thanks for having us on. And, and um, look, uh, we're, we're disappointed in, in, in the fact we weren't able to save consumers a lot of money uh, by merging the two low-cost carriers. But uh, look, it's still a great day for Frontier. They have paved the way for Frontier to be the low-cost carrier of the United States. And, and I think, as one of the analysts pointed out, uh, we, we just got handed the, key, the keys to the kingdom of low cost. So, so it's, it's uh, still a windfall for our shareholders. I think our employees are really going to win because uh, we've got the growth. But um, if you're a spirit consumer, you're, you're, you're facing a 40% increase in cost. So that's a challenge for them. But I invite them to come to flyfrontier.com. We'll have low fares for them. So I am curious, Barry. I mean, where does Frontier go from here? Like you said, you've got the growth. Are you looking at any other mergers, any other airlines? No, look, we're, we're, we're doubling down on what we're doing. I think, you know, while all this distraction was going on, I think what's what's interesting, if you if you look, is is we were able to increase revenues in 2Q by 43 percent uh, versus the same period in, in 2019. Had the highest RASM uh, growth in our history, highest I think record for for the U.S. industry. And so uh, we're 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 all systems go. We're, we're headed to be sub six cents, which is kind of a near our, our kind of pre-pandemic level from a cost perspective. So we're really excited about returning to profitability this quarter, and um, we expect the margins to continue to improve through the year end. So. Uh, we think it's great for organic growth for Frontier, and and now that we're kind of kind of left to our own devices to have to have uh, the whole space of the United States as the low cost carrier, um, things are looking pretty up uh, from an organic perspective. Uh, tell us, Barry, just remind us, kind of for those of us that have not been following the the deal, what was your rationale for looking to get together uh, with Spirit? So our rationale was you, you take two ultra low cost carriers, you combine them. You provide a true ultra-low cost alternative uh, to the big four uh, and high-cost carriers across the United States, and, and we would actually lower fares for more people in more places. Uh, but in the end, um, you know, our board was a very disciplined and unwilling to overbid and overpay because uh, we got to look out for our own shareholders and our own employees. And so, if, if JetBlue wants it that bad, uh, that's fine. But uh, the, sadly, I think some of the spirit consumers, you know, millions of them are going to be faced with a with a forty percent increase in the middle of some some great inflation. This is actually a heck of a heck of a bill that people are going to have to pay. So, um, so that's disappointing. But for us and 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 our stakeholders, our shareholders, and our employees, uh, we're really excited today. So, I mean, we have to talk about antitrust concerns because, I mean, the JetBlue spirit tie-up, a lot of speculation about what regulars might say about that. Uh, I'm curious about what it would have looked like on your end had this deal with spirit 
gone through, uh, what pressure you might have faced, and what you anticipate now potentially the JetBlue and Spirit uh, tie-up coming under? Well, look, I, I think you know the Department of Justice is is a is an organization that would have I'm sure done its job, and it would have you know validated what we were saying, which is we were going to lower prices for consumers. Um, I think uh, this is a more challenging path that they've chosen, right? I mean, they're going to raise prices for consumers. And that has obviously a lot more risk of getting through the DOJ. But, you know, I'm not going to speculate whether they get it done. In the end, um, Spirit shareholders were had access to, to the information and they made a decision that even with higher risk, it was a risk they were willing to take. So um, we wish them luck. All right, Barry, let's step back, take take a look at the industry as a whole here. Um, you know, it's been in the industry it's had a very difficult time dealing with the surge in demand. Uh, there's a shortage of pilots, which I don't understand. And I put a lot of blame on the airlines. There's a shortage of bag handlers. Again, I put it on the airlines. Tell me why I'm wrong. Why can't the industry, your job is to forecast demand. How did the industry so mismatched the demand and the supply? Well, I, I think... Look, you, you said you didn't know a lot about it. I think there's I don't know that I would blame the industry. Oh, um, but I do because I just got I've had some very bad experiences this summer. So I am firmly blaming the, the industry. But tell me why I'm wrong there. Well, well the industry has been warning about this for years and we are unique in 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 the world um, requiring fifteen hundred hours, which is an arbitrary uh, uh number of minimum hours. I mean, you're, you're in a few hundred hours in most countries in the world uh, to become a pilot. So that arbitrary thing, and, and rather than focusing on safety and the training quality and so forth, um, is actually put a barrier to entry to people being able to afford to get through it. And so that has resulted in a, in a dried up supply. So, you know, Boy, that's a, a tough argument to make, Barry, because we have the safest skies in the world and we take that for granted. I would argue, or some would argue, that why are you putting all the onus on the individuals to get trained? Why don't the airlines themselves train their pilots so they have a ready pool of pilots? Well, it's fun. well, it's funny you mention that. So, so we, the shortage is what it is. And so yesterday we announced a cadet program. So if you're interested in leaving Bloomberg Radio and becoming <laughs> a pilot, um, with zero hours, you can, you can join with us. And in, in two years, you could be flying an airplane for us. And, um, you know, we have, we've arranged financing and uh, it's as little as $80,000 uh, to become a pilot. And you'll easily make that back with the wages that are out there. So we're doing a lot to, to coach them through it and get them through the process and, and get them through this cadet program. And the response in the last 24 hours has just been huge. So, so we're excited. But the truth is, is what, what actually, you know, helps us even more is that we are one of the highest growth airlines in the world. And so one of the biggest pay raises you get as a pilot is moving from the right seat to the left seat. Uh, and so to be captain. And so because of our growth, you upgrade to captain within four years. Got it. Whereas you might be sitting, you might be sitting, you know, you know, it's in sitting reserve in, in JFK mm -hmm. for JetBlue. Whereas, whereas you could already be a captain with us potentially. So, so right. they see that. So you can make more money and you have better options for more bases. We have bases all over the United States and really desirable places. So that's why we actually have a surplus cool. of pilots today. So Barry, we only have 30 seconds left, but before we let you go, I have to ask, should the Spirit JetBlue deal fall through? I mean, would you try to tie up with Spirit again? Listen, I'm not going to speculate, but uh, look, we're, we're always looking to for ways to save more consumers money. So so uh, I'm not going to close the door on it, but uh, uh, let's let's let them uh, you know pursue their path and we'll see how it goes. All right, Barry, really appreciate you taking the time to come on. Uh, I know it's been busy times for you and the company. Barry Biffle is the CEO and president of Frontier Airlines. 
Earlier today, Kate, I was, we were talking with uh, Ira Jersey, Bloomberg Markets uh, rate strategist, and he was talking about just kind of the markets, what's going on, and a real li- liquidity problem. Mm-hmm. And it, it really rears its head, um, you know, when you get some volatility in the market. And we've had so much data come out recently. And there's been a lot of volatility here. Um, and he kind of cites there's just the, the big investment banks they are not stepping up as much as they used to for a variety of reasons, some of them regulatory. So our next guest here, I'm sure, has some thoughts on that. Chris Concanon, COO and president of Market Access. That is a publicly traded company. MKTX is what you put into your Bloomberg terminal. It's got a $10 billion market cap. Chris, thanks so much for joining us here. In the fixed income markets, give us a sense of kind of where we are in terms of liquidity, lack of liquidity, is it a problem? If so, what are some of the solutions potentially? Well, first, thanks, Paul, and thanks, Katie, for having me. It's great to be on the show. And uh, absolutely right, there are some liquidity challenges in our market. Um, definitely the result of the volatility that we're seeing, and we've been seeing some volatility in the market throughout the course of 2022. And we would expect that volatility to continue, particularly given um, the uh, moves that the Fed and, and other central banks are, are taking to really ward off the inflation that we're seeing in the market. So I would expect volatility to, um, to um, continue in that market, and that does create challenging liquidity um, uh, liquidity uh, challenges for our clients. But particularly around the large investment banks, they have to be very careful about their inventory and what they take on onto their balance sheet, uh, particularly given many of the regulations that they're subject to. Chris Cannon, first, let me say it is thrilling to talk to you. Known you for a long time. Second, I want to dig into the numbers of the market access business because I'm looking at your latest earnings report. Uh, grown market share to 20% of the composite corporate bond market. But when I think about electronic trading platforms, specifically for corporate bonds, it almost feels like a duopoly. You have market access, you have trade web. It's almost like an Uber Lyft sort of situation. And I'm curious whether right now, you know, this increase in market share that you're seeing, is that is that the pie growing larger or are you chipping away at some of your competitors' market share? Well, it's great to talk to you as well, Katie. And um, really what we're seeing is the overall market, when you look at the the global bond market, you're talking about a $130 trillion market. It's one of the largest asset classes on the planet. And it is still in early innings in developing true electronic solutions. And clearly in the U.S., uh, close to 60% of that market is still manual. That means over the phone, via chat. So the market opportunity that we have at Market Access is is truly sizable. Um, we're, as you mentioned, 20% of the U.S. Uh, corporate bond market. That means close to one in every five bond trades in the U.S. take place on Market Access. But that's still at a very low rate given the overall electronic um, the electronic adoption. Uh, in the U.S. bond market, and more importantly, globally, we offer electronic trading in in emerging market bonds, in euro bonds, in U.S. treasuries, and and my favorite in the municipal bond market, which is still far from uh, adopting electronic trading. It's very early days in the mu- in the U.S. municipal bond market. I'm sorry, you're saying the municipal bond market is your favorite? 
It actually is. It okay. has. Uh, it, it just has such great attributes for obviously the tax benefits of the municipal bond market continue to thrive. And um, just this recent quarter, we traded over 23 billion in muni bonds on our trading platform. So we are delivering some benefits in that market and some elect, um, sorely needed electronic trading in the municipal bond market. All right. Well, Bloomberg's Joe Mizak would be thrilled to hear that. But I do want to get your thoughts on portfolio trading. Of course, I cover ETFs, specifically fixed e income ETFs, an important component there. And portfolio trading, it was sort of presented as the next big boom on Wall Street in terms of, you know, when it comes to bond trading, it feels like it's stalled out a little bit. I mean, I'm looking at some numbers from February where you saw it come down in terms of total uh, U.S. corporate bond volume. Curious what insight you can provide there. Well, the we track the portfolio bond trade, portfolio trading in our uh, bond market, particularly in the U.S., where we saw it grow um, really most rapidly, probably in, in 2021. Um, I would call portfolio trading in the bond market as a very expensive trade. You're obviously trading a full basket, uh, typically trading with one or two dealers, and um, the spread of that trade is quite expensive. Uh, but it provides some useful um, ways of deploying capital and and um, moving portfolio uh, at a much rapid pace. We actually had record trading portfolio in our in our last quarter, uh, volume of 22 billion in portfolio trades on our platform. So we we do provide an electronic solution in portfolio trading as well. But as I mentioned, it's it's only about between five and six percent of the overall market, and we've really seen it stabilize around that rate. Mm. It's very hard to do portfolio trading in a volatile market and as we talked about the you know the the, the liquidity challenges makes portfolio trading that much harder in this type of market and Chris, we only have about 30 seconds left, but I mean, if I look at some of these numbers, again, from uh, February, it seems like the peak in terms of portfolio trading came in November. Like you said, I mean, perhaps it doesn't make as much sense in volatile markets, but how, how big do you think it could grow, again, if you look at the total share of corporate bond volume? I, you know, we saw portfolio trading hit its peak in the stock market back in the um, in the late 90s, actually. And it, it really hit a peak and then right. really ebbed, ebbed down. Um, so I wouldn't expect it to grow uh, anywhere over 10%. All right, Chris, really good stuff. Really appreciate getting your time. Chris Concanon, COO and President of Market Access, talking about the automation of trading, particularly in the fixed income space, a growing trend for sure. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and, not uh, as simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcast, And watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV+. Brought to you by Sherm, a better workplace, a better world.